Before we start the show, I just wanted to reach out and say that if you are loving listening to The Truth Prescription as much as we are loving making it, please subscribe to the podcast. Hit that subscribe button. Rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and iHeartRadio, to name a few. And come check us out at www.thetruthprescription.com to get more insights and info, because the truth will set you free if you let it. I wanted a more yang, more masculine energy because I really felt like I needed to settle into my feminine. And for me, that meant being receptive. That meant being vulnerable. That meant not trying to control everything, having more trust. Gentlemen and ladies, brothers and sisters, people, whoever you are and wherever you are, welcome to the Truth Prescription Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sekou Gathers, and each week I interview successful people from around the world and discuss how accepting the truth can propel your career and help you live a life of gusto and purpose. No mantras, no gimmicks, just the truth. So close your eyes and open your ears, and let's get into this. Come on. All right, good people, welcome back. Today was a cool show. I talked to Ms. Heather Grish, who's an Ayurvedic practitioner, which is uh, our Ayurvedic medicine is a ancient Indian medicine, Indian from India, not Native American. We talked about a lot of different things. Uh, her truth was she gave us a story about when she realized she was holding on to all this pain and anger for her father and the situations and scenario that that led up to this realization and how she had a breakthrough after that. We talked about the power of speaking the truth, which is what this show is about, in the face of negativity. And then we get a little bit into her book, which focuses on Ayurvedic fertility. And it's actually written for both men and women, for people that are trying to have children. How can you naturally birth a child without having to go through heroic measures, you know, surgery, implantations, etc. Yeah, we had a good good vibe, good synergy. Sit back, relax, and take a listen to the show. I, I enjoyed this one. All right. Good people. Welcome back to another episode of the Truth Prescription Podcast. I'm here today with Miss Heather Grish. Did I pronounce that correctly? Yes, I'm impressed. <laughs> Heather Grish. Well, I looked at a couple other interviews, so I let the other people make the mistakes. <laughs> Heather is an Ayurvedic practitioner, particularly specializing in reproductive health and fertility. And uh, her book, which you can see right behind her, is Ayurvedic Guide to Fertility, which um, we'll, we'll get into for you mothers-to-be. And one of the, the thing I like when I was looking at some of your interviews, Heather, is your story is similar to my story in terms of my wife. We had our children a lot later in life, so... She was, you know, in her late 30s and 39, similar to you when she had our last child. So it can be very stressful, <laughs> you know, when you're trying to do these things, not only the internal stress of whatever your body's going on, but whatever cultural, you know, stresses just come along with trying to get pregnant, being a mom and, and all those things. So welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm excited to be here with you. Heather, I think um, before we start talking about some of the things you do and Ayurvedic therapy and what that is, um, let's jump right into the truth prescription. Talk to my listeners about 
time in your life or an experience you had, uh, give us a story where there was a truth that you were ignoring or you weren't aware of that once you accepted it, created a massive breakthrough for you. Yeah, that would go back about, there's many of those, I would say. <laughs> that I've yes. I'll live in different spots in my body that I'm slowly uncovering as I go through my 40s. And I would say one really super vivid one comes to mind this morning for me is uh, I was in Costa Rica doing a yoga teacher training. I was in a corporate job for many years. And one morning I had woken up and said, I want to be happy and healthy here. And I realized as I was hung over on my friend's couch, <laughs> my ex-husband <laughs> saying this, that I realized that, oh my God, I said that last year. And I said that the year before. And I said that the year before. And for some reason that day, my solution was I need to leave the country and I need to do a yoga teacher training. It was just literally like, I, I need, I really need to get something in order. And so when I went to Costa Rica, that was ultimately, I went to my boss because I had, I was head of product development for a health insurance company. Mm. What a product. Yeah, exactly. It was uh, quite a, we'll have to have a whole other conversation yes. about that. Today. <laughs> Painful. <laughs> so I, I went to my boss and I said, how much time can I get off of work? I want to go on a big vacation. And she said three weeks and I was ultimately able to sort of work it so that I could be gone for a month. Mm. Okay. So I'm in yoga teacher training I'm eating, I was eating tons of meat before I went down there. I'm eating a vegetarian diet because the teacher was like a strict vegetarian. She was trying to get everybody in the planet to be vegetarians and vegans. And, you know, so that was what she set up in her program. And it was very rigorous and it was beautiful. It was in the jungle and there were all these birds. And I was very lucky to be there. It was so beautiful. Mm. And one day I'm in a yoga pose and I turn a certain way. And I crash down on my mat. I go, I've been shutting my father out of my heart mm. for 30 years. That turn happened and, and it was like, I just sobbed. I think I made it through the rest of the class, but I remember I laid on that mat. I lay down on it after everybody left. And the thing about yoga is you think that I think everybody's all kumbaya and like if they saw you crying, they would come over and try to console you or something. But no, everybody left me there and it was exactly the thing to do yeah. so that I could fully feel exactly what I was feeling. If someone, you know, because later when someone did try to console me, that actually created this whole new karmic spin <laughs> from it, to be perfectly honest. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. That moment, though, of crying and letting that go was like, it was so big. It was physical. It was mental. It was emotional. I could feel exactly where it was trapped in my body mm. and where that turn of that yoga pose exposed it. Mm. That's the cool thing about yoga is you get all kinds of weird body awareness, things like that, or whatever other kind of physical, mental modality that you do. There's others as well. And... That set me on a course of trying to reconcile with my father, who I don't have, even to this day, I really don't have a great relationship okay. with him. Okay. I think like you, you had expressed that you had some challenges growing up with family. Yeah. I did 
with my father. And as a result of that, I really sort of blocked him out for a lot of my life. And Mm. what was interesting was that I felt like I had taken on almost this like masculine self-protective form Yep. by not having, yeah, by not having that energy that was flowing through me from that relationship. Right. And it definitely comes back to haunt me even still because I don't have a great relationship with my dad. So seeing that really made me look at, because I was in my thirties when I did a yoga teacher training and I was not yet a mother. And I was actually, at the time I went to do my yoga teacher training, I was trying to get pregnant with my husband. But when I saw that pattern, I actually ended up leaving my husband (laughs) and like, Because there was so much that got, I don't think everybody has to do this when they go through a big healing. I think we, a lot of us do it. I think there's a way to get through it with your partner. But the way that I did it was just shift all of the relationships around that karma, that trauma that happened. And so that set me on a path of trying to figure out, well, I don't know that I've been with the right kind of guys. I've been behaving a certain way with my male partners and a certain dynamic with my male partners. Hmm. And I was like, am I going to be a mom? And I wasn't super, I wasn't freaking out about it yet because I was, you know, only 32 at the time, you know, but as time went on and I got mid thirties, I was starting to freak out and go, am I going to have a baby? I spent a lot of my thirties going, what? kind of guy should I be with? Because I don't feel like I've been making very good decisions sure. for a lot of my life. Sure. And so I spent a lot of time contemplating that. And a lot of my healing work was around more awareness in relationships. And when I was in Ayurveda school, studying Ayurveda, I was doing a master's program. That was when it was really starting to get intense for me of the biological clock ticking. And I was with a partner that I Mm, probably wasn't going to be very good father material. (laughs) (laughs) Women always know that. I I knew it because we walked into a, a, a furniture store and we basically were looking at couches to buy for our apartment. And the way he looked at me while we were doing that was this voice came in my head and said, he thinks you're his mother. Stop. (laughs) Don't do this with him. Mm. Because for me, I really wanted to get into a very vulnerable place with someone because I felt that the act of having a child was going to be a vulnerable thing that I would be going through and that I would need to be giving my energy wholeheartedly to another being, this little baby that had not yet joined me. And so I really wanted to make sure I had a wonderful support system around me in order to be able to do that. Once that relationship ended, I was like, I really don't trust myself. I need to just date for a while <laughs> and meet a lot of different people, which I had never done. Okay. <laughs> I was like a serial, serial monog- monogamist. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty, pretty classic serial monogamist. So I decided to date in my late 30s. Okay. It was like mid to late thirties for the first time, really, Mm, because I, I, my energy was always like, because of that wanting to control the type of man that I brought in, that it was a lot of control for me. I think I would literally, I felt like I would go, you, you're the next one. Like Mm. (laughs) that was kind of my energy around it. Yeah. 
Yeah. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't, if a guy hit on me, I would just, I would be like, no, he's too aggressive. Even if it was just like a subtle. Hi, my name is. Yeah, exactly. My name is Bob. <laughs> the most neutral name in America. My name is Bob. Exactly. <laughs> so my energy, my thoughts, everything became colored by this sort of like self-protective thing that I had going on. And so once I saw that pattern that had been created, I was able to breathe and just be like, let me see what happens when I allow some of that energy. And because I wanted a more yang, you know, more masculine energy, because I really felt like I needed to settle into my feminine. And for me, that meant being receptive that meant being vulnerable, that meant being not trying to control everything, having more trust. That that was a big part of it for me. So that's the one that comes up. You know, the, like I said, there's a lot of them, but that's the one that... That one is huge. That one is huge. There's a lot to unpack there. I just, at the end, I just want to say that um, a friend of mine and myself just recently were talking about this dynamic where we noticed that there's some women that are overly aggressive. And I told him in my experience when I was dating, what I found is usually those women didn't have relationships with their fathers or the relationship was very bad. And so they had to, as you said, take on some masculine energy inside of them. And then that was pervasive in their relationships. And so just to kind of recap, I think it's super powerful. couple things. The fact that you woke up and you realized something's not right. And there's a pattern of something not being right. And so I have to make a, a drastic change. And I understand that because my, my first, this is my second marriage. In my, my first marriage, I kind of woke up one day, I was going through an illness and I kind of similarly woke up one day and was like, this is just, there was a big, this big blow up that happened. Police were called and all this drama. But I realized this, this is not working. And then when my ex-wife came and asked me, why are we going to make this work? I was kind of like, no, not really. <laughs> because I'm not doing what I, the best I can do for you. And I don't feel you're doing what the best you can do for me. This relationship is toxic. It's not great for any of us. And I think the fact that you just went and your body needed, your body and mind and spirit needed a reboot. Yoga is great for getting in touch with, with that. And you had that moment where you could just let everything out. Is your father still alive? Yeah, he is still alive. He's still alive. Okay. And you don't have to share it, but we talked earlier about a type of abuse that was it, was it similar to what I shared with you before we got on? I, I can talk about it a little bit. Okay. I'm happy to do that. You know, it is interesting. I think when your parents are still here, you want to, I still want to protect him in sure. some way sure. because why I, I have, do care about him. So I haven't published my book. <laughs> this podcast started because I wrote a book and this was going to be two years ago and three years ago. And this was going to be the, the sort of launch pad for it. But there was so much stuff in there that was just, I just, in my heart, I was like, I don't know if I can do this right now. So I get, I understand what you're saying. Because you know, when you unravel your pattern, you're also unraveling theirs and then they have to face things that they're not facing too. Right. So I think for me, <laughs> and like, it's funny because um, I'm actually in the process of starting a podcast and I feel like the whole reason that I want to do it is to essentially work on my way of speaking hmm. because I have so many memories where my, my voice got me in trouble sure. as a child sure. where, you know, I was a, a scared kid or afraid kid. And I would say some very disrespectful things to my father who was 
clearly going through a very difficult time. You know, we had some financial issues growing up and my father, his business had gone bad in one of the recessions in the early 90s. And so we lost our house and uh, there was a lot of stress around that. We had to move in with my grandfather. And when that all went down and actually wasn't just then, but my dad had a very bad temper where if we would get into an argument, it would escalate and then it would typically end in him trying to hit me Yeah. at the end of that. There was no other way to stop it. What I observed on his end was like, there's no other way to stop it except for let me shut her up with force. Right. Right. So he, he was so overcome with frustration and anger. Yeah, exactly. So that was kind of the thing. So I wouldn't say that that's the nature of that. Okay. As a path. And I saw it was so fascinating when I was going through this in my mid thirties and I was studying my relationships with great depth of care after that, I was very detached from a conversation that I was having with my father where that sort of escalation process started but I was, because I was meditating every day, I was meditating, like I meditated every day for six years. Yeah, I was yeah, really- you were really in tune and yeah, I get it. So we had this one conversation where basically we started kind of arguing and that sort of, I call it like ping pong, like it's like an angry ping pong that goes back and forth. Mm. And I was watching the ping pong go back and forth. And then I, he said something and I was about to say, well, you know why that happens? And I was about to say like, cause you're an asshole or something like that. (laughs) And then I stopped myself Mm -hmm. and I said, say the truth, Heather. And I said, it happens because we're family. And I didn't say the thing that would have normally come after that. I said, and I watched my father physically become disarmed. It was like watching an energetic like something you'd see on Return of the Jedi or something. I mean, I watched him, like his whole body just become like shifted in in Mm -hmm. a moment, literally like he was pierced through the heart or just something. It was so wild. I think something shifted in that, in our dynamic in that moment from that. Yeah. So it's interesting because I could see how I contributed to it, even though I didn't necessarily there's a little part of me that blames myself, I would say. I could see how I contributed to it. I don't own his parts of it. No, absolutely. You can't. Um, that negative energy is like a self-fulfilling prophecy. It just goes back and forth. And its purpose is to destroy and disconnect. The fact that you you meditated, meditation is so powerful. I actually have a few meditations on Insight Timer. People want to go check them out. But the thing I like about meditation, I also meditate daily and have done so for eight years or so is it allows you to slow things down in the moment where you can really just connect to something that's real and not the ego's rants, right? Because the ego tells us stuff all the time. That's 90, 99% of it is just just blah, 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 just garbage, right? So the fact that you could speak the truth in that moment of, of, of negativity, super powerful. It just And it just shows you how weak negativity really is because all it takes is little, one little drop of truth to just dissipate it. That's really powerful. I'm going to actually write that down as another one of your truths. The, the power of positivity in the, in the face of negative, the truth, the power of the truth in the face of negativity. Yeah. That's what it was. I think we'll leave that there. That was, I think, I think the listeners got a, got a good chunk of that. So essentially you, you had to face the fact that you 
were holding a very large negative energetic space in your body for your for your father and that, that it needed to get healed. Tricky because on you know, when there's a dynamic between two individuals, if one side is shifting and the other side is not shifting, it's sort of hard to reconcile the whole thing. I mean, I think you can always quote unquote be the bigger person, <laughs> they say. But it is very difficult to um, make another person heal themselves. Like you can't, you can't make that happen. Uh, and I think that's, you know, one of the challenges with anything, any dynamic that you're trying to heal, right? Whether it's your family relationships or whether it's race relationships or anything like that, you can't <laughs> influence the other side, right? Or the other person, but you can't change them. There's this whole process that they have to go through internally and that they have to want to go through or that they have to spontaneously go through however that comes about. Well, this is the way I think about it. Everybody grows at a different pace. And that may mean this time you're here, you're not growing that much. It might be the next time or it might be another time. But everybody's growing and we don't have a choice. This Earth planet is a school. We don't have a choice but to grow. We can either go with the flow and have all these things happen and try to, you know, gain something from it, connect to what's real. Or we cannot and life will just keep kicking us around. And I think that's how I look at it. And that's how I try to have compassion. And that's how I, some of my healing has been being able to look at those individuals who were abusive in a sense you know, just understand that we're all at a, they're all going at a different pace. And I know this for a fact that nobody, except for maybe a serial killer, does anything on purpose. Nobody's like, I'm going to walk in here and I'm going to slap my daughter because I'm angry. Nobody says that. People are not in control of themselves and they're just, they're just, you know, jerked around by these things that they don't understand. And so. I totally agree with you. I really, yeah, it's really, and it's, it's very peaceful to come to that place. Because I'm not, I don't target people as evil. Like yeah. that's not how I'm oriented. I'm, I have a lot of people in my life who do that are very more justice oriented and um, kind of like knights, <laughs> you know, that where there's something bad to fight and I've got to go and fight it. So I, I definitely like to come from a place where, and I believe, because why would a person who, was happy and healthy and whole do something to harm another person. Right. Why would they do that? Right. It doesn't exactly. make sense. You got it. Yeah. All right. Let's see. Where, where can we go from here? Hey, let's talk about fasting real quick. You know, I, I noticed oh, yeah. on your site, you have a little thing about fasting. Why is fasting important? And what, what do you think the benefits are? God, I love fasting uh, and I hate it. No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was thinking, it's funny, you're bringing up a bunch of things that were like somehow coming up for me this morning, like when I woke up. <laughs> I'm psychic. Um, no, I'm just playing. You kind of are, yeah. <laughs> so I did my master's thesis in Ayurveda school on fasting. Ah. When I went into the process, I was like, oh, I don't know what I want to do my master's thesis on. I think I want to do it on like why the healthcare industry needs Ayurveda. It was like very cerebral and very geeky and that kind of way. And you know, I had this one advisor in India. He was like the head of the top Ayurveda school in India. And I like picked him as my advisor from my ego. And mm. he he saw my original topic and he was like, who's going to believe you? <laughs> I was like, oh, 
you jerk, but you have a point. <laughs> I was like so mad, but I also sort of felt like he didn't give me anywhere to go from there to move toward having someone believe me. So I just felt like I hit a wall with him and I was listening to one of my other professors speak one day and he lived closer to where I lived. Uh, he lived in uh, the U S not in India. So I knew it would be easier to connect with him <laughs> right. timing wise and things. I said, I don't know what I want to do, but I, I think, I think I need you as my advisor. I just, I really don't know what my topic should be. I wanted to do this whole other thing, but I felt like I just, I can't do it and I'm lost. And he's amazing. My thesis advisor is Dr. Suhas Shirshagar. He's a, uh, an Ayurvedic physician trained in India. He's also a medical astrologer. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. So he that. was, uh, yeah, super cool dude, very skilled. And he kept bringing up all these different forms of Ayurvedic therapies to me to allow me to react to. And he'd give me some homework and I came back and it was between two therapeutic forms for me. It was between langana, which is a lightning therapy, which fasting falls under. And the other one was swedana, which is a sweating therapy. Hmm. And they each have a different physiological impact on the body. So I think he was trying to, I felt like he was trying to push me toward the swedana, but then I, I got so attached to this fasting thing. I found it was so fascinating. And he's like, all right, that's the one. Like he, so we found where the fascination was and where I felt this curiosity and it was a real, real curiosity. So I wrote my master's thesis on that and I wrote it. This is how I did it. I went through all the ancient Ayurvedic texts. Now they start in like 600 BC and they're written in poems. They're amazing. Okay. So they're medical texts written in poems makes this little hair stick up on my arms. So I went through all these books to find out what do they say about fasting? And luckily, you know, they're all available electronically now so I could search and I could find oh, every yeah. instance of the words used for fasting. And, and I just dumped it all and like put it all together. I packaged all that up. What did I see? Every little thing I found from there. Then I went through all the biomedical research and this was in 20, let's see, it was 2015. Okay. And 2016. So it was before fasting got super big. I mean, you're talking about the intermittent fasting. Yeah. Yeah. Like intermittent fasting is so huge now as a, you know, a health fad for sure. Yeah. Weight loss. Yeah. But there was a a fair amount of research already in that area uh, being done, even though it's not used necessarily as like a medical modality very often in a doctor's office, there's a, a fair amount of research being done on it. So I found all the biomedical research. And then I went through what all the religions say about it. I went through like, okay, what does the Quran say about it? What does the, uh, the Old Testament say about it? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I went through with the major religions, not all of them, but, but what a lot of the major religions said about it. And I said, what, what are they all saying and how that, how this would affect your mind, your body and your spirit. And in the Ayurvedic texts, I found, okay, no one, cause I think a lot of people go to Ayurveda because the Indian philosophies are very authoritative <laughs> in many ways. <laughs> okay. Because they're very old. It's counterintuitive, actually, because I think a lot of people get attracted to the Eastern medicines because they don't feel authoritative, because they're, they want to, you know, they open their mind somehow. 
but I actually find that their, their style is very authoritative mm. in that, you know, and there's a lot of attitudes around it's been done like this forever. So this is the truth kind of thing, almost like it's a religion to be perfectly mm. honest. Some people treat it like that. So I found though, in the text that there was nothing authoritative. It's how people have applied it, but in the text, there was nothing authoritative. Okay. There was nothing saying, this is how you fast. There were instances that said, when there's this condition, the person can fast as part of this process to heal this and things like that. And when you fast, this is how you should do it. And these type of people need to be concerned if they fast mm. with these types of side effects and when you know you've fasted well, these are some of the things that you would experience. Mm. Okay. But there was never like, this is how a person should fast. And obviously the reason is there's no one way to do it. That's why the book didn't say that. Right, right. <laughs> so that's what I found in the in those texts. And then when I went through all the biomedical research, you know, there was a lot of research on, you know, fasting. I didn't look at it for weight loss purposes. I did look up, you know, what biomarkers did it improve? How was it being used in cancer treatments? Because think about if you have a tumor and yeah, you starve you know, it, you basically starve the tumor. So yeah, so there was research that showed that fasting along with chemotherapy and things like that was actually more effective. And I found a lot around things that you would normally expect, blood sugar, all, you know, all that metabolic factor stuff with fasting. And then I went, when I went through the religions, I was like, okay, there's some people do this for something other than just health. There's something other, cause obviously you change your body when you fast, but there's this other component, you know, there's a mental component, which could go positive or negative, depending on how grumpy you get when you fast, how hangry you get. Exactly. But for the spiritual piece, which religions aren't necessarily spiritual, right? But that's what I was looking for in them. It was so interesting. When I went through the Ayurvedic text, it said that when you want to study with a master, you fast before you study with them. So like a student, before they go study with someone who is really going to transmit, you fast. And I think that the the thing that sort of all came together for me was that fasting changes the receptivity of your body and it changes your receptivity to energy and sensory information, everything. You know, I think there's a physiological way to explain it. And then there's maybe an energetic way to explain it. That's a little more difficult. Yeah. You have to experience it. Yeah, totally. Now, I mean, it kind of makes sense. One of the things I love about Ayurveda is you go through, you basically start to look at the body as a series of channels. And it's when the channels become, the flow through the channels become impeded in some way, whether it's because they're clogged, whether the channel's inflamed, whether the channel stopped getting energy. There's all these reasons why the flow would change. And one of the concepts we have in Ayurveda is maybe the equivalent to plaques in modern biomedical terms. And coronary artery and, plaques, yeah. Yeah. Things and so get stuck. Yeah. Exactly. So we talk about the metabolic byproduct that where the food doesn't get digested, 
properly and that state we call it ama it's like a we call it this like sticky sort of substance that and you've probably seen it in all kinds of bodies you know based on your work and the plaques um, but you can have plaques anywhere in your body mm-hmm. you can have clogging anywhere in your body and you can have it visible at a macro level and you can have it happening subtly at a very small level that is not detectable except via you know specialized tools probably <laughs> to be able to see it but maybe you can feel it when you feel cloudy and foggy and things like that, that would kind of make sense that those descriptors go along with a sense like that. So a lot of the things that we do in Ayurvedic medicine is like clearing that out. And we use a lot of methods to do that, whether it's taking an herb or, you know, going through a cleansing process. But I found that fasting was kind of a, like a slower, but maybe easier way, a more gradual way of cleaning some of that stuff out Mm. in a body. So I I love fasting and I did a lot of it. So I was doing all the intellectual work while I was studying and writing my thesis. And then I was fasting myself because, you know, I was finding all this stuff. I said, let me try it. I'm not here just to learn intellectually. I'm here to learn. Operative philosophy. Yes. Yeah. So that was cool. And I didn't realize all the benefits that I would have personally gotten from it. I had, you know, dry skin patches on my feet clear up. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I lost weight and I was never like a a big girl. You know, I was, there's a point where I was a little bit, you know, chunkier in college, but I was surprised at maybe how much excess I did have that I didn't need. And that actually was preventing my body from functioning more optimally. Sure, sure. I was really surprised by that. I've done um, a bunch of different fasts. Sometimes just like in a, every spring I do a no meat, no alcohol fast. Every couple of years we do this. Basically, it's just like a fruit fast. I've done juice fast for 21 days. I've done all kind of fast. What I, for me, what it, what, what it's brought out is like, it, it really keyed me in on how much I was using food as like, an antidepressant or an anti-anxiety medicine, or is there a such thing as an anti-anger medicine? <laughs> you know. And when I actually just fasted and then let the emotions like feel what I'm feeling, sometimes I did a lot of crying. Sometimes I just, you know, was able to sit with it and process things. But in addition to the cleansing that's going on, you know, in your physical body, to the point you talked about earlier with the energy, there's something that happens energetically also which is probably why they want you to fast before you go talk to a master. Cause he's like, I don't need no, no extra dirt. I'm giving you, <laughs> I'm giving you some pure energy here and I want to make sure that it's received. Well, it's received in a nice, in a, in a nice physical space. Oh, and by the way, I would attribute fasting to like, I think it's why I got pregnant on the first try. Cause I think my body was just so receptive mm. and so clean and just so like hungry for nutrients and hungry for like whatever. Yeah. It was like so receptive. I, I really do believe that. Now, now for the listeners, are we, are we being technical when we say the first time, meaning the very first time you said, all right, I'm going to go off. If you want birth control, I'm going to go off and I'm going to have, you know, relations with my husband unprotected. That one shot was the so one that did it. It's, it. it didn't line up like that okay. because I was older. It's, it's actually on his side is, okay. is what happened because uh. I, I was like, 
38, I'm going to be 39. You know, we got to do this. And, and I just, at some point was, I left it up to him. He wasn't okay. ready. Okay. He was totally not ready. Yeah. But the day he was ready that he decided to not, you know, pull out. <laughs> right. The rhythm method. Yes. Exactly. The day he was ready. Boom. First time. Well, then that's that. Then, yeah, that's the definition of what I'm saying. It literally was the yeah. first time. It really was that. That's amazing. I had that happen with my second, my first, my wife was having some issues. And and to your point, not anything major, but we had tried all this crazy stuff. And then she went and got acupuncture. And then right like the next time. And then with my second, it was this, it was what you're describing. We decided we we're going to do it. She went on birth control. First time, that was it. <laughs> so when the body's ready, it's ready. And with that, let's talk a little, since we're talking about the, the kitties, just talk a little bit about your book what women can learn and um, why you, why you decided to write this? Yeah. So I, I decided to write it cause I loved writing that master's thesis so much. I was like, I want to write a book now. No, I always <laughs> wanted to write a book and it sounds like you do too. And yes. I can't wait to hear more about what it's about. I basically, I had been writing for years and just kind of a couple pages here and there, and then just sticking them in a folder on my computer and they had a name and you know, there was a topic and whatever. And after I had my kid, I was home. Now I was very clear when I had a child that I did not want to be a full-time working mother. I was very super clear on that. I think it's one of the reasons I left my initial, my first husband, because he wanted me to work full-time. He like, we weren't on the same page about how we wanted to live our lives. And I wanted to spend my energy on being a mom and my time on being a mom. And I really wanted focus on that. So I was really clear on that. And I was also used to working a lot. So when I had my kid and I worked with my partner to design that particular scenario, and I was lucky because I had made a lot of money earlier in my career and, you know, didn't have to worry. Yeah. Savings and stuff. I had all this time, you know, after the baby was born and yeah, you're busy and you're, you know, I, I learned how to, a few new skills after the baby was born. I learned how to day trade, <laughs> you know, you're breastfeeding a lot. You have a lot of time <laughs> you're sitting there. And yeah. The baby's sleeping, like, breastfeeding and sleeping. Yeah. Yeah. So I kind of started to live on my phone a little bit, which is I think what a lot of moms do, you, you know, between breastfeeding and shopping on Amazon for diapers. (laughs) Damn Amazon. (laughs) So I recognized, you know, you go through a lot of things as a mom where you wanted this baby so badly, but at the same time, you you still want to maintain your sense of self. And if you had a career before that you gave up, you know, it can be really scary to suddenly lose that because you know that once your kids are older, then you're going to be like, what do I do with myself now? And where do I provide value and all that stuff? So I also knew that I wanted to kind of work part-time while my child was really young. And so I hired a gal to come and give me like 12 hours of babysitting a week, went through all my old writing. I said, I got this time. I've, I've really, you know, I've made this possible by suffering in my corporate job for all those years. <laughs> Whatever. You're laughing, I mean, but it's, yeah, go ahead. You know, suffering and it, there were, it was a very mixed experience, of yes. course. Yes. Um, but I benefited from it because I had all this money and I had time from having money. Time is a luxury. So I was able to go sit in coffee shops and look through my writing and go, what the heck was I writing about for all these years? And then I said, oh, 
I was writing about how to get pregnant naturally. Okay, mm. let me put an outline together. Now let me do this a little more sort of organized and supported from the, you know, not just my opinions and like supported by the form of medicine that I studied. So that's kind of how it happened is that I, uh, it was a very bottom up process for me. Yeah. It was just what was coming up for me. And then I started collecting that. And then at some point my top down approach started after I saw the bottom up. Sure. And, and it sounded like part of your impetus was that your, um, I won't call it disdain, but let's just say your disagreement with this cultural thing when, when a woman gets over 33 that she's got to go get IUI and in vitro and all this kind of stuff instead of really trying to do it like you did it naturally. Yeah. I mean, certainly I feel I spent a lot of time before I got to that point of getting of conception. I spent a lot of time personally getting my body prepared for it on many levels. And healing a lot of things, healing my menstrual cycles, getting my body optimally healthy, you know, making sure I was ovulating, like all these things. Cause I don't even think I was like ovulating at certain points in my early thirties. So I went through this whole process. Now I knew that I was not going to go get IVF or IUI. I knew that about myself because I just said to me, if it would feel like my karma hasn't lined up, and my life environment is not structured in a way that allows me to really become receptive to that. Yeah. Um, karma, you know, the past and the, you know, the, the effects of the past are also a factor. But there are a lot of women who do go get IUI and IVF and who actually have read my book and who I've worked with as clients and who have gotten pregnant successfully. So I'm certainly not, certainly not against it because I mean, for me, I was against it. I mm -hmm. knew I didn't want it you for personally, me. Right. Yeah, but I'm not, I don't think it's necessarily, I don't, I'm not going to judge somebody for doing it. I just know that there are other effects that happen. It's a very sort of narrow treatment and it's only focused on this one goal. And whenever you get like that, you lose sight of the bigger picture of health. And so there are typically implications that women have side effects from doing those types of therapies. Um, and in fact, like one woman came to me, she's like, I developed these little weird red dots on my body. And I could tell that things just got out of balance, you know, when I was doing that. So she wanted me to help essentially clean her out before she went in for the IVF for okay. the actual implantation. So sure. she went through all the hormonal stuff at first, got the eggs extracted and they did the you know, smashing of the egg and the sperm. And then they had their embryos. And then between that part, before they went to transfer the embryos, I helped apply kind of the principles of what you would do to prepare your body for becoming receptive to that moment that was going to happen in the medical procedure. Okay. okay. Yeah. So if they read your book, they will learn, give me three things they'll learn. Okay. So they're going to learn what Ayurveda is. Because a lot of people hear that and don't know what it is. They're going to learn more about their particular body type and the types of imbalances that they sort of tend to get that may be prohibiting their best health. And they're going to learn not only about how to help themselves be healthier, but I include a chapter in there on their partner's health and how they can start to observe his health 
Cause I did, I mean, I, I did write it for people with male partners. Um, that's the okay. audience I would say primarily you can sort of apply the principles if that's not your situation, but right. for the male partner that, um, there's a whole chapter on men's health and men's fertility in there as well. Okay. Nice. All right. It sounds like, um, it's very informative. Sounds like you, you wrote it with a lot of good intentions. So I'm, I'm excited to, uh, to, to have folks read it. How can people get in contact with you if they want to do some coaching with you or just read more about you and what you do and all that good stuff? Yeah. So my website is heathergrish.com and I'll spell my last name because it's not an easy one. <laughs> <laughs> Heather and then G-R-Z-Y-C-H.com. I'm sure Dr. G will have that in the notes. Yes. Yes. I'll and, have that in the uh, notes. Are you on Instagram or Twitter? I'm on Instagram and Twitter. I don't really do Twitter. I do Instagram re- pretty regularly at Heather Grish. And then my website, you can learn about the book, uh, The Ayurvedic Guide to Fertility. And it's also on Amazon, Barnes & Noble and Bookshop. Okay, perfect. Well, I, first of all, I want to say kudos and congrats for completing a manuscript. It's a big undertaking, especially with all the responsibilities that you have um, with young children and uh, it's not easy. And so, I, you know, from one author to another, one writer to another, kudos. Yeah. And yeah, thank you for, for coming and sharing. I, I think um, the folks got a, a nice little, like, nice little, little, little droplets of truth in there. Something to think about, especially the, the conversations we were having earlier about energy transfer and forgiveness and negativity. Those things are really important for healing. Um, the book that I'm writing is about trauma. It's about how to overcome trauma. And so, you know, these, these are some of the, the principles. So that okay. sounds very powerful. And I yeah. want to hear about it. Yes. <laughs> yes. I know. All right, Heather, thank you so much. Um, I will sign off as I always do. The truth will set you free if you let it. Mm-hmm.